Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. everyone welcome to stick to wrestling my name is john mcadam this is the stick to wrestling podcast a classic wrestling podcast primarily focusing on wrestling from the 70s 80s and 90s uh before we get rolling i want to invite you to follow me on twitter uh just search the name john mcadam and follow the guy who has the stick to wrestling logo as his avatar I also want to thank the following, David Salcho, uh, Charles Hurd, Daniel Hufter, Joseph Rome, and finally Mark Rollin for donating to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. Mark let, really let me have it. He puts Roll Tide with the <laughs> donation, and yeah, the Tide rolled last Saturday. That was a kick in the stomach. Uh, but anyway, Steve, talk about the Facebook group for a moment. Well, the Facebook group is really uh, hotter than ever. We're having lots of great conversations uh jamie hama discussed the best wrestling hammer time <laughs> best wrestling interview segments and uh in jamie's opinion he felt uh they were all about the same but he liked the brother love show which really surprised me there <laughs> and then we had a question from john Ware. um this one was a few days ago he was asking about uh, when or why did the Victory Magazine transition into the WWF Magazine, and this is going to take me off on a brief tangent. Um, actually, um, Bob Smith, who used to uh, be the editor of PWI, uh, he has a podcast, and he mentioned this very uh, subject on his show. He said that uh, uh, when, the, when the Stanley Weston company of the old After magazines found out that uh, WWF was putting on a magazine, Victory Magazine, they didn't like it because, as, as everyone probably remembers, in the upper left-hand corner of every After magazine was the little logo, Victory Sports Series. And they, uh, yes. and they felt that somehow infringed upon the After mags. Stanley Weston sent a friendly letter, a lawyer's letter over to Vince, and uh, shortly we had a WWF magazine. And, uh, and the reason I mentioned Bob Smith, too, is that he was kind enough to invite me on his podcast, which is called The Outdated Wrestling Hour, and that will be de- debuting the same day you are listening to this podcast. Steve, I was about to ask you when that was coming out. So it's coming out on uh, October, Friday, October 27th. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And you'll hear about uh, all the inside trade secrets of Stick to Wrestling, how the sausage is made. So it should be a good show. Ah, I'm interested to hear that. I don't even know how the sausage is made around here. Yeah, Steve Generelli, uh, the sometimes co-host of Stick to Wrestling. Steve, thank you for all you all you do. John Ware, what is going on with that that pit team? Uh, I don't understand it. I coming in, I thought they'd win at least eight games, but I should stop talking about that. <laughs> we are continuing to discuss. Oh, let me little disclaimer by the way. I messaged Steve about 45 minutes before we started recording. And I'm like, Steve, is there any way we can, you know, put this off? Because the landscapers were making an amazing amount of noise. And when I say that, when I go into my bathroom, turn on the light, a fan automatically goes on. And I was washing my hands. So I've got the water running, the fan going, and I can still hear this thing blaring. (laughs) But it's nowhere near as bad as it was. But if you hear a a hum in the background, there's nothing I can do. Sorry about that, kids. (laughs) We probably, probably can't hear a thing. 
All right. I'm pretty, you're right. I'm probably being just too self-conscious of it. But anyway, let's talk. continue talking about the WWF fall of 1983. Uh, I mean, just a lot to go over because it was really the end of an era. And as I was saying last week, when Backlund lost the title, when Bob Backlund lost the title, it was like not only just the Backlund era ended, but both Bruno eras ended, the Pedro Morales era ended, the superstar Billy Graham era ended, that whole era ended. And there are a lot of people who prefer the post, the Hulk Hogan era WWF. There's nothing wrong with that. I can see it. But for Steve and I, you know, that era ended. It's what we grew up on. Uh, Steve, I mean, Backlund for me won the title uh, the end of seventh grade, and he lost it about six months after I graduated high school. Now, everyone think about that. Think about how what an eternity it is <laughs> between the beginning, uh, the middle of seventh grade and after you graduated high school. It was forever. Well, I, I think I'm like maybe about a year older than you, but uh, yeah, I can understand what you're talking about. I uh, I think I've said this on the podcast before. I got a phone call uh, on a weeknight. Uh, apparently, there was a house show in Binghamton a few days after the MSG card, and uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't know the title change. I hadn't heard about it, but apparently, on the house show in Binghamton, they did announce the title has changed. Iron Sheik is now the champion. My friend told me this over the phone, and I was dumbfounded my mouth just my jaw just hung open and i think that was your reaction and uh, everything had changed yeah i got home from montreal about six at night on january 1st 1984 and before I, i went with one of my friends i dropped him off and before my car i can even unpack my car his stepdad calls (laughs) So my friend gets on the phone, and he's like, hey, I got to talk to you right now. He's like, Bob Backlund lost the title. I'm like, what? <laughs> and the stepdad takes the phone. He's like, Bob Backlund lost the WWF championship. I'm like, to who? And he's like, guess. I'm like, okay, Morocco. No. Sergeant Slaughter. No. Mass Superstar. No. I'm out of guesses. <laughs> I'm like, Morocco? I, I, I keep asking the same guys over and over again because oh, I guessed Orndorff. And I didn't even guess Iron Sheik because that's how far removed he was as a possibility to me as becoming the WWF champion. And I couldn't imagine him getting a superstar Billy Graham-like run with the belt. I mean, I couldn't. I'm like, you know, who's going who's gonna to pay to see Ivan Putski against Iron Sheik in the main event? Who's going to pay to see Tony Atlas uh, going after the WWF title at Madison Square Garden against the Iron Sheik? Like, you know, I knew wrestling was worked but i didn't know at all how it worked but i knew like you couldn't just make this guy champion because this match was so historic and i knew we'd be be talking about it i had to go back and watch it like i actually watched like two or three times just to really kind of try to you know see it from every angle and and i think one thing that stood out to me from just watching it again last night was 
if you remember when uh, the the famous famous match where Hulk Hogan dropped the title to Ultimate Warrior and and before Hogan even left the ring, he is the immortal Hulk Hogan. You know, Monsoon declared him the immortal Hulk Hogan, and they were really deifying him, putting him up on this mountaintop. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm watching this match, you know, Backlund had worked the injury the entire match. He he doesn't submit, he doesn't take a pin, but uh, Skolin throws in the towel. Uh, so we see what happens post-match. We see the post-match interview with uh, Laura Alfred Hayes joining the Federation. And Backlund is just so distraught, so devastated. And there's no mention about, oh, my God, the six-year six reign, your six-year reign was so incredible, or you're so incredible. You're going to be the next legend. You know, There was nothing of that. And it, it was all because you know Vince knew that this guy was going to, for the most part, go on the back burner unless he was going to play ball and turn heel and if that was the case then he'd be maybe in the second or third rung he wasn't going to be on the mountaintop any longer all right a couple of things number one i agree with you uh with the hogan thing that you know as soon as warrior won the title and i've always felt like this is a major reason why ultimate warriors wwf champion did not work out and that is because instead of pushing ultimate warriors the number one guy they kept pushing hulk hogan and you know they didn't do that in 1984 with hulk hogan they made it clear who the number one guy Mm is uh number two we have that audio and we're going to be hearing it later on but i mean you're right you know it was like uh, one thing i disagree with steve Mm -hmm. is that I don't think Vince knew what he was going to do with Backlund afterward. Mm -hmm. I think he was going to do what kind of he did. It's like, okay, we still have Hogan number one, but Backlund is a top guy. And it turned out that he just didn't fit in with the the Hulk Hogan era. And he was gone by the middle of August 1984. I I think part of that was that the the elder Vince McMahon was still alive and he was a big supporter of Backlund. I mean, he was from talking from hearing Backlund talk about it. He was almost like a surrogate father to Backlund. And uh, he was still there in Bob's corner, so to speak. And as all these changes are going on, unfortunately, uh, the elder McMahon was getting ill and quite sick and he passed away in may of 84 and uh you know if you look at the the matches you know after post championship for backland you know he's wrestling a little bit of everybody he's having a match with tito santana he's having return matches with chic he's he's in these matches with b brian blair these tag matches but but I think by the time that Senior did pass away in May, I think the writing was really on the wall. Um, he was still being used a little bit. And then by kind of like the end of summer, end of August, it was officially done, done. And then on to, he did work some dates for them for New Japan. And then, of course, he ends up in Pro Wrestling USA, which I know you want to do a show on in the future. So Yeah, Bob Backlund in Pro Wrestling USA was rough, but I mean... <laughs> To, to, to say the least, it was rough. And, you know, I remember at the time watching Pro Wrestling USA and just knowing this is not going to work. I mean, the other channel has the other channel, the other promotion has Hulk Hogan and you have the guy that Hulk Hogan replaced. And Vince, you know, I don't th- like I said, I don't think Vince knew what he was going to do with Bob Backlund, you know, after he lost the title. But when Backlund was around i mean i saw that he got a good reaction at madison square garden okay which i was a little bit surprised because 
I saw his matches, a couple of matches in, in of his in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, his last WWF match ever until he came back in the 90s against Salvatore Belomo uh, in Philly, and the fans were just booing <laughs> like crazy. And I'm sorry if you're tired of me saying this, not Steve, but the audience, but if it's, if it's loud on TV, believe me, it is deafening in the arena. And Bob was really getting booed in, in Boston as well. And I had you know a gentleman from Pittsburgh a couple of weeks earlier who said that Bob still got a good reaction in Pittsburgh, so I guess it varied from city to city, but you know, I think... Really, and we, we're going to talk more about this as the months go go on. There just wasn't a role for Bob Backlund. Like maybe you could put him in a tag team with someone. Like you know, Bob and his you know Bob mentoring a younger guy tag team, sort of like Sergeant Slaughter and Terry Daniels. But that was really it. Well, Bob Backlund, being that he had two bees, he could have been the killer bees with Pete Brian Blair. I mean, Jim Brunzel. Oh, that would have been Jim funny. Brunzel only had one bee. I mean, for Pete's sake, but. Uh... Oh, that would have been funny. Bob Backlund in those like <laughs> gold and black uh, Converse they were wearing to the ring and the bee jacket. That would have been great. <laughs> well, you know, another thing about this whole uh, the, the Bob Backlund transition from champion to f- forgotten person, you know, at the very beginning, you know, we all know the story that, you know, Vince, Elder Vince wanted a all-American boy to be champion. And, and there were points during the championship reign that, that he really did act like a boy, like when the Billy Graham tore up his belt. I mean, he had this kind of a childish reaction to the belt being ripped up. And, and even in this video, which I'm sure you'll probably have audio of, where uh, Billy, uh, not Billy, but Iron Sheik wins the title from him, and there's a post-match interview. He sounds like uh, a high school athlete who, you know, who was a go- junior high school junior athlete. High school athlete who he went to make the the winning th- f- you know free throw, and he broke his ankle instead, and he's you know <laughs> humiliated and he's despondent. And I mean, I know uh, there wasn't you know such things in the old days as agents and producers, but you know if there had been somebody to tell Bob like okay, you know, you were the All-American boy, but that was six years ago. You're a man now. You have to, you know, show you're tough and you have to show you're a, you know, macho guy, a tough guy. And uh, and if he had given like a, a different persona, I mean, I mean, we had seen it with Bruno when he uh, had somebody turn on him or, uh, you know, beat him up or something happened to him, he would just get enraged and he, you know, he was kind of scary. With Backlund, it was just like, uh, is he, uh, you know, do we need to do a mental health checkup on him? You know, it just seemed different. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, Bob's doing pretty well considering he has Down syndrome. That's that's what he came across when he was upset. It, it wasn't pretty. <laughs> it, it really wasn't, and we'll be hearing that. But I'll tell you what, for review purposes, they had a match with uh, Tito Santana and Iron Mike Sharp. Uh, and we have the post-match audio, and it's a little bit crazy. Let's go to that now. The official time... Now, ladies and gentlemen, in four minutes and 48 seconds, the referee has disqualified because of outside interference. He has disqualified Tony Garria, the winner, Iron Mike Sharp. Sharp wants to be. I think Sharp is demanding your presence, Pat. Well, remember the last time somebody called me over? See what he has to say. All right, all right. Iron Mike Sharp 
has something to say, obviously, and wants the whole world to hear. I've never been so disgusted in all my life. Never have I experienced such an experience. That guy, that Mexican went back. He jumped. Which you wish about the fear. Well, what's the matter, Mister? Mister? What's the matter with him? What's the matter with him? What's going on around here anyway? What's going on? Did you see that Mexican did? He's jumping from behind. Tina said, Tina, that proves to everybody you've got no guts. You're not a man. And I've issued you a challenge for next week. I want you and beat you in front of all the people in this arena and also the millions in TV homeland. I want to see you crawl. I want to see you scream. I want to see you beg. And I'm going to knock your head off. Now, just a minute. You're challenging Tito Santana right. here he's next week on television. He's got the guts to get in the ring with me. I want that man right now. Well, I can guarantee you one thing. Tito Santana will not back up from anyone, and especially from you. We'll find out Did next you, week. You think that was a display of courage? That was a lack of guts. That was cowardism to the highest degree, Patterson. Cowardism. And we'll find out later if Tito Santana accepted the challenge. Back to you, Vince. All right. One of the worst experiences he's ever experienced, Iron Mike Sharp. Uh, he was wrestling Tito Santana. He got disqualified. Continued not. He was wrestling Tony Gurria. Excuse me. He got disqualified. Continued to beat on Gurria. Santana came out to break it up. He demands an interview with Pat Patterson. And then Lou Albano, his manager, comes out and smacks the guy. That's what like startled Mike Sharp. So a lot going on here, Steve. Well, I think um, you know, as it turns out, uh, uh, these were kind of like uh, guys who were dueling for the number one position for the IC belt because the Morocco still had the belt. Iron Mike Sharp wrestles Morocco for the title in, in November at Madison Square Garden. And as we know, in January, I believe uh, Santana gets his shot in the Boston Garden. Yeah, and that was a big surprise. We're going to be talking about that very soon. But one thing that also happened at this taping, Steve, is that Vince McMahon announces that next week, the Wild Samoans will be facing Bob Backlund and a mystery partner. And I, I mean, when I saw who that mystery partner was, I was taken aback. <laughs> well, it just, it just seemed, uh, you know, I mean, the writing was on the wall. Uh, uh, I know uh, when we had our questions for this show, one of the questions was, did, did either one of us know if we, that Hogan was coming in? And, and I certainly didn't know. And, uh, yeah, but just from the moment he, he appeared on the scene, I mean, I, I just kind of put two and two together and realized, yeah, this is going to be our next uh, long-term champion. Yeah, you see, I, I was struck by lightning. I, I had no idea. I did not piece it all together. You know, Bob Backlund lost the title literally to me out of nowhere. I, you know what? It probably was out of nowhere because as soon as Hogan said, well, as soon as he agreed to come in, uh, that was the end of Backlund. So that's, you know. It was completely unplanned, and it came across as completely unplanned. Um, All-Star Wrestling, uh, the next night, uh, we have an important occurrence. The Iron Sheik fought Jimmy Jackson to a no contest when, after the match, Sheik did a demonstration with his Persian clubs. WWF World Champion Bob Backlund came out to see if he could do the exercise with the clubs. Backlund was successful on the third attempt, but was attacked from behind by the Sheik, and Bob was injured in the storyline do, do we have footage of that or audio clips of that 
I'm afraid I don't. Well, I, I did get to see this, uh, and it, it was a very almost like a primitive uh, uh, angle that they did. There really wasn't any, you know, fancy, uh, you know. It, they just went and did it. I mean, they just uh, Sheik's in the ring. He's going to do his 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 uh, thing with the, with the clubs, and then Backlund shows up. And like John said, he he's having a little difficulty at first, but then he starts doing it kind of in a in a not nearly as good as the Iron Sheik would do it. But uh, and Sheik uh, attacks him from behind, and one of the clubs appears to hit Backlund in the head or the neck. And uh, Backlund is wearing his street clothes, uh, and he's getting pounded on by the sheik and you know if you're if you're looking at this and from a kayfabe standpoint i mean you've seen uh backland uh, get pounded down by the sergeant slaughter with the writing crop during the harvard step test you saw a mass superstar give him the spinning neck breaker on the floor and, and if you knew about the house show he even got carried there stretchered out there i mean he he had been really beaten up uh, quite a bit in 83 so he was a bit vulnerable to this, um, you know, this most recent attack. And going into Madison Square Garden for this match with the Sheik, you know, he was really going into the match really uh, with an injury. And would he be able to perform at full strength? Well, you know, when you, as soon as you say Bob Backlund in street clothes, I'm like, yeah, Bob Backlund looking like an eight-year-old dressed by his mom on Easter Sunday. Uh, I, you know what? I, I know I'm coming down Bob hard. Trust me, I am a Backlund fan, and I have great memories of Bob Backlund. Just by this point, Bob you know, was a little bit out of touch. Steve, I've got to ask, and I'll, I, I'll almost guarantee the answer is yes. Any time during this era, if you saw something that was remotely close to being shaped like one of Iron Sheik's Persian clubs, did you try the Persian club challenge? <laughs> no, no, definitely no, not. No, you're kidding. No, definitely not, no. I would do it with two liter bottles of soda. <laughs> and let me tell you. It's hard. Really? It really is hard. I can't imagine if those clubs are really 75 pounds, if those clubs are 25 pounds, like I don't see how the average American male, even a, a relatively strong guy can do it. That is a difficult exercise. Yeah, yeah. And, and the angle itself was a, a believable angle uh, with the chic, uh, you know, one, one of those big clubs kind of fell on the back of uh, Backlund's head and he's just, uh, you know, on the mat and he's trying to get up and he's just a mess. And, uh, and, and, and you know, when I was rewatching the, the title match from the Garden, the match was was really uh, you know not a great match in the sense of uh, they're really having a lot of good going back and forth and a really exciting match, but it was a well told story in the sense that you know Backlund is selling the injury the entire match, and you you kind of get the impression he really shouldn't be in this match, but you know it definitely led to the, some interesting storytelling and of course with the title change it really all made sense as the viewer watching it. Yeah, I, I, one thing, I just can't believe I'm the only person in this conversation who hasn't tried the Persian Club Challenge. We Someone remind me uh, when this episode comes out, or even do it yourself, put a, put a poll on our Facebook uh, group page, like, you know, have you ever attempted in some way to do the Persian Club Challenge? I can't be the only one who, who's done this. 
You know, one thing I've always thought, Steve, and a long time ago, back when Sean was on the show, we had an entire hour on this. Um, and if you're listening, you want to go back and look in the on the archives. I think it came out December 2018, I want to say. Okay. We did a whole show on the claim of, you know... Like Mass Superstar says, you know, he asked Pat Patterson, how come I didn't win the title? And Pat says, oh, well, uh, Bob wanted to lose it to someone who had an amateur background uh, in wrestling. And Bob denies it. Bob says he doesn't care. And I believe him. I, I always thought that they should have put more thought into who won the title as opposed to the Iron Sheik because let's face it Iron Sheik was immortalized by that one night where he was in the right place at the right time and that that's what the, the episode is all about he was in the right place at the right time if Hogan had signed uh, a month earlier Mass Superstar would have gotten that spot if he had signed a month later Paul Orndorff would have gotten that spot but I really think, like, you know, Vince and everyone in charge should have said, okay, who should get this spot? Who should be immortalized? And, you know, to me, I would have done it in a way so that you would have put the belt on either Slaughter and Morocco. And that way, when you turn them, and I think they should have turned Morocco earlier than they did, you know, he's, he, he has that sheen of former WWF champion, not a guy who's about to get stuck in a tag team. Well, um, I, I respectfully disagree with you, only from the standpoint, oh! only from the standpoint, I know it's the first time it's ever happened, but only from the standpoint of, you know, Iron chic uh you know again we both agree he was kind of this outsider pick he definitely wasn't a mainstream pick to be the the, the new champion but uh you know having him uh, beat backland uh, do the job for hogan and then and then because he had the rub of the championship him going into this huge huge feud one of the best remembered feuds now that we look back on it 30, 40 years later, a solder against Iron Sheik was a great, superb feud, one of standout feud in the history of the WWF. Uh, I, I don't think uh, that any of these other guys that we're talking about, you know, Orndorff, Slaughter, whatever, I don't think that they would have gotten as much out of the rub of the championship as, say, Iron Sheik did. Steve, good point. Um, they did Iron Sheik versus Sergeant Slaughter as the main event in major arenas. They did it in Madison Square Garden. They did it in Boston Garden. I haven't looked it up, but I'm sure they did it in other places. And you're right. Had Iron Sheik not been a former WWF champion, would the fans have bought him as a top guy against Sergeant Slaughter? And as you said, was a very successful feud. And I say that you could have Hulk Hogan against whoever in one major city and then do Sergeant Slaughter and versus the Iron Sheik in another major city and now you're drawing $200,000 houses at in one night. Oh yeah, and, and Vince whether it was excellent planning or just a, just luck, uh, he really lucked into having, you know, great great feuds and great uh, box office because of the, his decisions. And and I got to give uh, John uh, some props here too because uh, you know, he had said earlier in the show that this 
whole thing with the sheik was such a surprise and 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 you know john said that he didn't know that you know hogan coming in would lead to what it led to for for those that didn't know uh when you're watching tv at the time uh they did actually uh, promote the idea that the following msg card the one in january was going to be a rematch between bob Backlund and the iron sheik and and there's been talk and rumor and speculation about Backlund may have even been allowed to win that match but then you know when hogan came in and they did the big angle with the samoans and 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 then they it was deemed that Backlund was too injured to go into that madison square garden match uh yeah that's when everything kind of went hulk's way and they really you know gave him uh all the hundred percent of the marketing the blitz and the, the major push from that point but uh yeah i mean everything changed so quickly it really did, and I've actually been able to view the New York feed of the, you know, the Madison Square Garden show, mm-hmm. and uh, or excuse me, the WOR show, mm-hmm. where you know I saw the the interview where you know Bob Backlund says he can't get clearance from the doctor to wrestle, and he's stepping aside. Hulk Hogan comes in, and he's he's going to be wrestling the Iron Sheik, and I think you know if. Maybe five years later, if I had seen that, I would have been like, oh, my God, Hogan's winning the title. But, you know, maybe at the time, but I didn't see it live. I saw it on tape later. But anyway, for review purposes, we've got some more audio. Let's hear from Tito Santana. I would like to ask you a simple question. Last week, Mike Sharp stood out here and screamed and hollered. He was so upset. And he says he wants one thing more than anything else is a match with you right here on television. And he wants to really hurt you. He wants to put you down in front of all the fans, but he wants it on television and he's challenging you. So we're trying to find out if you're accepting the challenge. I'm sure you've heard about it. We wanna hear your answer. I'll tell you one thing, Pat. I'm gonna tell Mike Sharp next week I accept the challenge right here. You know, I know Mike Sharp is a very tough man. He's very big and he can move very well. And Tony Gurria went and got me in the dressing room because he was worried about Albano. He thought they were going to hurt him. I went out in the match, and that's exactly what Mike Sharp and Lou Albano were trying to do to Tony Gurria. They were trying to hurt him. I did any, just the thing that any human being would have done. They were out there trying to hurt, injure Tony Gurria, maybe end up his career. Mike Sharp, you want me, brother. You got me here next week. Arriba! All right. We know it's going to be a tough match, but we'll see it right here next week. Tito Santana against Iron Mike Sharp. Let's go Vince, up the ringside back now. To you. All right, that was Tito Santana, as if he was going to back down from the challenge, uh, being a babyface. Boston Garden, December 10th, 1983, uh, draws almost 15,000, which is almost a couple of hundred short of a sellout. Uh, Looks like a really good card on paper, and I was there. Let me see, main event, Bob Backlund defeats a mass superstar in a lumberjack match. Jimmy Snuka over Sergeant Slaughter, there's a match I'd want to see. Tito Santana beats Don Morocco by countout. Pat Patterson beats Ivan Koloff by countout, and then there's a few prelim matches. There are a lot of Boston Garden cards that I remember from over 40 years ago pretty clearly. Steve, I don't remember a thing about this card. <laughs> I, I, I just don't. Yeah, I, I think uh, after the big show you saw the month before where Backlund and Skolan got stretchered out, I, I, I'm sure that they couldn't really follow that up. Uh, the Lumberjack match Good was point. probably a, kind of a screwy ending, I imagine. 
I, you know, I, I usually I can tell you the endings of the Boston Garden matches. I have no idea what the ending was. I mean, I, I am one hundred percent cent, one hundred percent certain that I was there that night, December seventeenth, nineteen eighty three. They have an interesting show at the Baltimore Civic Center. Uh, it was headlined by a battle royal where the winner would get a shot at WWF champion Bob Backlund, and shot. Shock of shocks, Tony Atlas wins the Battle Royal. He and Rocky Johnson were the last two guys in there. They flip a coin. Rocky Johnson eliminates himself, doesn't want to fight his tag team partner. And we get Bob Backlund versus Tony Atlas in Baltimore. Yeah, I, I'd say the only reason that, that happened was they, they must have you know, known the right was on the wall. They're going to have him, Backlund, lose this title very soon. You know, why don't we at least throw the fans a little bit of a curveball, give them a unique once-in-a-lifetime matchup you're not going to see again. And um, I think that's the only reason why they did that, uh, because it was, you know, Backlund was a lame duck champion and the change was about to happen. Yeah, I would have. I mean, if they had that in Boston, I would have been going nuts <laughs> waiting for Bob Backlund versus Tony Atlas because it was something so different than what they usually do. Yeah, yeah. And I, I see the ending was the typical, uh, you know, baby face ending where uh, Atlas was trying to do a leapfrog and Backlund ac- accidentally bumped into him and they Atlas got injured and they just stopped the match or something like that. Yeah, they. Uh, let me see. Uh, this is from the history of WWE.com, by the way. I want to thank uh, Graham for all the great work he does on that. Uh, yeah, it says uh, Bob Backlund and Tony Atlas go to a no contest when the referee awarded the match to Bob Backlund after Atlas suffered a low blow while attempting a leapfrog, but the champion refused the win. Boo. All right, now the big one, Steve. Madison Square Garden, December 26, 1983. And there's another big one after this, ladies and gentlemen, that, that occurred in 1983. Uh, Jimmy Snuka and Arnold Skoland, sub for Buddy Rogers, defeated Magnificent Morocco and Captain Lou Albano. Steve, I mean, we, we all love Arnold Skoland. We're fine with the guy, but he's not the guy we wanted to see in the ring against Jimmy Snuka and... and and especially, well, we wanted to see Jimmy Snooker and Buddy Rogers, not Jimmy Snooker and, and Arnold Skoland. Yeah, it it really it did take it quite a the luster off of this match. And uh, and you know, I'll, I'll ask you the question that's on the, the tips of a lot of our listeners' uh, tongues here. Uh, do you know why the lighting was so different for this MSG show? It was quite different. I heard something a long time ago about the WWF. Taking, wanting to do the lighting themselves instead of like MSG and MSG Network. I don't know if it's true, but it's something I heard a long time ago. And you're right, the lighting was was noticeably different. Yeah, it, it was, and, and and you know, some people liked it better. Some people thought it was worse. I mean, I know in the watching this card, especially this Albano match, it just seemed like they were wrestling in the shadows. It just seemed really different uh, than the norm. It was like a blue light instead of like a bright white. That's right, light. a blue a blue light. A tinted light and uh but but th- that match was actually kind of enjoyable still i mean just to see uh, you know albano in the ring with uh snooka and uh you know morocco uh it, it seemed like th- these tag team matches were kind of like uh morocco's way to do a job for snooka without really doing a job for snooka you know 
That's exactly what they were. Jimmy finally gets to put Snook, uh, Morocco's uh, shoulders to the mm-hmm. mat, but he doesn't win the championship. Let's hear from Jimmy Snuka and Arnold Skoland after that match. Back here at Madison Square Gardens, standing beside me, the incredible Arnold Skoland and the absolutely indescribable superfly Jimmy Snuka. A fantastic performance. You had many surprises you pulled out, Arnold. You can always do it. You had a lot in store for those boys. What's in your mind? Well, I can tell you, the reason I did so good because I had such a great uh, tag team partner. Without Jimmy Snook, I'd be nothing. Oh, he's a great Jim- man. Oh, he's a dazzler. Jimmy. There's one thing I'd like to say, brother. And I want to wish all the people on a beautiful one Christmas and a happy new year. There's one thing I'd just like to tell Buddy Rogers. Brother, I hope you are going to get well. I had a good man here to take your part. We proved it. And this one was for you, brother. And I just want to tell the people, and for the future to come by, I hope everything goes better for everybody else and honor. Thank you, Jimmy. Your to be on be your Gentlemen, we look forward to seeing you as a tag team combination again. I'm sure you'll be successful again, but right now we're going to go back to ringside with Gorilla Monsoon and Pat Patterson. Things keep changing quickly. Uh, Lord Alfred Hayes is doing backstage doing interviews at Madison Square Garden. He had not been on uh, regular WWF TV yet, so I, be- I believe this is the first time he makes a public appearance for the World Wrestling Federation. Hey, you know, I, I just he, he was always one of my favorites. I mean, I always thought he was a great guy. I know some people don't care for him, but uh, I, I just really enjoyed his act. And, and it's funny to see him in this role because he's replacing uh, Pat Patterson, who who had done it a little bit, uh, Mel Phillips, uh, of course, uh, Cal Rudman had done it for a while. Uh, so he's doing this role. I mean, I think I think this is what he ended up doing for the first WrestleMania, you know, kind of the backstage reporter. But as we, as we all know, he'd end up being the co-host on Tuesday Night Titans and have lots of different roles in the WWF over the years to come. Yeah, I mean, Lord. Everyone lo- loved Lord Alfred Hayes. I mean, you, you know, Neil Shockett was on he on the show about two years ago, and looking forward to having Neil back. And he was talking about what a great guy Lord Alfred Hayes was. Um, so at, we we have. Be- Going in, in a little bit different direction, Afa Sika and Samula defeat SD Jones, Rocky Johnson, and Tony Atlas. Uh, Tito Santana defeats Ivan Koloff. Ivan Koloff would never wrestle at Madison Square Garden again. But before those two matches, the big one, the Iron Sheik defeats Bob Backlund. After almost six years as WWF champion, Bob Backlund is gone. I mean, I look at it, you know, I mentioned this earlier, Steve, October 2017 doesn't seem like it was that far long ago. I mean, six years, you know, it's different But when you're an adult, but when you're a kid, six years is just an, an unbelievably long period of time, and it was over for Bob Backlund. Let's hear the post-match interview with Arnold Skoland, and uh, as a matter of fact, first let's hear from Iron Sheik and Fred Blassie after Iron Sheik wins the WWF Championship. History has just been made for the first time in five years. The World Heavyweight Champion, or should I say ex-World Heavyweight Champion, Bob Backlund, dethroned by the Iron Sheik. Now then, his manager is here with him, standing next to me, Ayatollah Fred Blassie. Your it comment- finally happened. I predicted this. I said this would happen. And I said it many times. This is the only title that saluted me. But now my Sheik has got it. 
I guarantee every movie made tonight fell right in place. Ah, just like, oh, wonderful. I can't say enough. Tell them, Sheik. Tell them. Remember, I tell you before, you people are American. But remember, I'm not American. I'm from Tehran, Iran. 10,000 miles. I come to Madison Square Garden with my greatest manager. I told her, bless you, try get that back. Ladies and gentlemen, the world of wrestling is stunned by this decision. This is the first time, and now I'm going to give you back to ringside with Gorilla Monsoon and Pat Patterson. Steve, I'll bet that if I asked Fred Blassie, you know, if I knew Fred and I said, you know, how did it feel that night? Like, what was it like? Fred would kind of kayfabe it and say, ah, it's no big deal, kid. It's it's a work. What do you expect? But I'll bet deep down... Fred, it had to be important to Fred Blassie. Like that's a crowning achievement for him. He he is finally managing the WWF World Heavyweight Champion. Uh, you know, and Wizard got his run with Graham, a long run. Albano at least got his day in the sun with Ivan Koloff, and and Wizard had Stan Stasiak as well. And Fred Blassie, as a manager, finally gets to the top of the mountain. Yeah, <laughs> we've talked about it on the show before. It was really. Uh uh, really nice for us to see him win a championship as he had been there for so long. I mean, he had been a manager there since 74. And uh, and, and, and as usual, Vince uh, pulled off something that hadn't been done in other sports. He actually had Blassie wired for sound in this match, something the NFL would steal years later. Uh, they hadn't gotten so advanced like the WWF, but Blassie, you could hear him uh, coaching Sheik during this match. He kept telling him to kick him, kick him. And uh, I, you know, they they had uh, actually Blassie got the ring mic from Howard Finkel after the after the match, and he was saying some words. And on the Peacock broadcast, they kind of cut it off. But uh, I thought that was interesting too to to see him actually kind of celebrate the championship in the ring. It really was, and like I said, to me, it was stunning. I was ready. At the time, I was not a Bob Backlund fan, I'll tell you right now, but, you know, 40 years later, even less than that, I became a big Bob Backlund fan, but... um. I mean, December 26, 1983, to say that I was ready for something different uh, is an understatement. And boy, was I going to get something different. But I'll tell you, before I get into that, let's hear from Bob Backlund and Arnold Skoland uh, minutes after Bob Backlund finally loses the WWF championship for review purposes, of course. (laughs) We're back here in the dressing room and standing with me is... Arnold Skolan, the manager of the former world champion. And although this uh, pains me, these are interviews that we sometimes have to conduct. Arnold, what exactly went wrong? Well, I'm going to tell you, this is one of the bravest champions I've ever seen, and he was hurt. He was hurt before he went in the ring. We tried to advise him not to go in, but he didn't want to let the fans down. And that's that's the kind of champion he is. He He had to go in there and prove himself. But I kept watching him, and I knew he was hurt when he was in there and he's the kind of guy that would never give up and once he got once the he start got that camel clutch on him and hurt and I knew Bobby wouldn't let quit and I didn't want to get him hurt worse than he was so that's why I threw in the towel and it hurt me worse than hurt well anyone. Arnold we applaud the courage of Bob Backland but maybe it was a little foolhardy to risk 
him at that stage. Do you think that the uh, new world champion is a worthy champion? Well, I don't know. Anybody that wins a title is a worthy champion, but uh, I think Bob Backlund is a greater champion, and he was a great champion by going into the ring and did not letting the people down. He wanted to show them what kind of champion he was. Okay, Arnold, in a nutshell, what is the extent of his injury? Well, I don't know yet. We have the doctor who's been looking at him. We can't tell for a while yet. They put ice on him there till that swelling goes down. He Just see if we can get one comment from Bob. Bob, how do you feel about this? Possibly too difficult to say. I feel like it. No. Like Obviously, it. he is in too much pain to speak now. We're going to send you... We'll have one more effort to get a word from Bob Backlund. I feel like I let everybody down. I wanted to fight for my country. I can't go home. I leave them like, what a present. Like, I don't want to go home. Calm down, Bobby. You speak to him, Arnold, and assure him that not everybody feels this way. We feel he did his very, very best. Yeah, calm down, Bob. Good advice <laughs> administered by Arnold Skolan. You know, I think having Bob, you know, kind of, I feel bad. I let everybody down. Like, you know, that's a good baby face thing to say. But the, the way he said it, it was just, you know, again, just way too over the top, in my opinion. Yeah, it was, it was just, uh, you know, you're trying to look at it from an adult uh, viewpoint of, you know, this guy is like a top uh, notch athlete. I mean, we've seen these, you know, great uh, Super Bowls. I mean, uh, w- with, uh, with Travis Kelsey, would he be interviewed and start crying like i want to go home or don't send me home i mean i mean don't send you know, me home. it's like you know it's it's like you know i mean we want to suspend disbelief we want to believe that you know these are great uh, combatants in the ring and they're doing something wonderful but it just his reaction just seems so juvenile and so like uh sad i mean it it, it definitely I mean, um, you know, I mean, let's compare it to again. I'm sorry to keep bringing Bruno up, but you know, when when Bruno lost to Koloff, you know, he got pounded into the mat from the the knee drop off the top rope. He, him, and Skolan, you know, slowly go back to the dressing room, and of course, fans are crying because they they buy into it so much. But you know, but yeah. but Bruno was was a proud man, and he just went back to the dressing room. Uh, the match with Graham, where Graham stole the title from Bruno, and Graham was a bloodbath in Baltimore. I mean, Bruno just you know, went back to the dressing room. It wasn't any crying or I let people down. Or, I mean, it just seemed like a more adult reaction to a test. No, it was a, a far more dignified reaction. Yeah. I mean, and, and you got to remember, like, who was watching wrestling <laughs> in 1983, right? Yeah. Who was watching a bunch of mostly male, kind of macho, tough guy wannabes, and they don't want to see Bob Backlund crying. I'm sorry. Yeah, and, and, and you know, the the whole thing about Bob Backlund post-title, uh, it's just kind of sad that the promotion just, like, uh, was so wishy-washy on him. Oh, you can, yeah, you can wrestle. We'll put you on a card, you know, and they didn't really give him any important role. And, uh, and when he ended up on, on the Pro Wrestling USA show, it was kind of like, 
you know, when you're watching WWF and you're, you're thinking to yourself with Hogan and Santana and Orndorff and Piper and all these guys, you're thinking, God, this is so exciting. And then you put on Pro Wrestling USA and you see, you know, Backlund in his suit and you see Billy Graham again. And it's like, are, are we good, like watching like something from 10 years ago? It just seems so outdated, you know, even though you're watching it live. No, I, I mean, you're right. It, you know, the, I think that wrestling had evolved and we were now in the era of the kick-ass babyface. Dusty Rhodes is one of the biggest stars in the game. Uh, Mr. Wrestling 2 will fight fire with fire. So will Junkyard Dog. So will Hacksaw Jim Duggan. So will Hulk Hogan. And, you know, and then in world class, you've got the, the Von Erich boys who are like rock stars. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Mid-Atlantic, Roddy Piper, you think he cares about, you know, you think he'll fight fire with fire? Of course he will. And you just look at the rest of the baby faces, the guy, the top baby faces, and the guy who does not fit in is Bob Backlund. Yeah, it's just, it just in, in that respect, I mean, looking at it in a serious way, it's just kind of sad that, that, you know, here's a guy that was put up on this pedestal the champion and and he certainly acted like a champion all those years in his public appearances and did so many great charitable things spent time with kids and stuff like that and he was always a good example but uh to see him kind of like given this uh b or c team role where he's still on the payroll still wrestling but it doesn't really matter i mean it's kind of like watching david san martino i mean yeah he was out there he was wrestling matches but he wasn't getting a push he wasn't really uh, integral to what was going on and it was just kind of sad to watch uh, bob Backlund at this point of his career I mean, yeah, in, in 1984, you know, he main evented the Boston Garden against Paul Orndorff. He main evented Madison Square Garden twice against Greg Valentine. But in a way, he was just another guy. I mean, okay, Bob Backlund, Hulk Hogan is the champion. Where does he go from here? And the answer was kind of nowhere. We now. We're not done because the, the, the end of 1983 is, is coming to a close, but the, uh, something, two other significant things happened in the WWF. December 28th, 1983, they have a taping at the Chase Hotel in St. Louis, <laughs> Missouri, of all places, the, the heart of of the NWA, the Sam Muchnick's own city, and the WWF certainly not invited has a television taping there. Um, it's not a typical TV taping. Number one, uh, Gene Okerlund debuts. Uh, Dr. D. David Schultz shows up uh, with his friend, at the, his real-life friend at the time, Hulk Hogan. Uh, defeats Bill Dixon with a leg drop. It is Hogan's first match in the WWF in over three years. Uh, Mil Moscaris wrestles on this show. So we've got a lot going on. And again, the WWF, I mean, if, if they're coming to St. Louis, you better believe there's no place they won't go. Yeah, it, it, this show kind of felt like a coming out party for them. I mean, it's like, you know, here they are on, on the NWA turf, the St. St. Louis Wrestling Club turf. And, um, you know, they're not worried about uh, any of the old uh, 
Sam Mushnick or Vern Gagne or anybody involved with St. Louis Wrestling Club, uh, they're they're bringing in all these stars and uh, and I and I happen to watch these shows over the weekend as they are on YouTube. Um, they are they are kind of primitive. I mean, the shows from the the Wrestling and the Chase were were poorly lit. They had kind of a bad ring announcer who was definitely not up to WWF uh, standards, and they had um, it almost sounded like they had crowd sweetening in there because uh, they didn't really have a huge crowd, but it sounded like when you know Atlas and Johnson were wrestling, they had some really like exaggerated cheers and boos in there. And but you got to see Adonis and Murdoch. You got to see John Studd with his very uh, uh, brief uh, manager there. At, I think it was Dr. Jerry Graham Jr., but he was Mad Dog Manganoff or Madanoff. Mad Dog Manganoff. So if we have the first new WWF manager since Fred Blassie stopped wrestling in 1974. Yeah, and and, and he just seemed like your your generic uh, 70s or early 80s manager, a guy in a bad tuxedo. Uh, he was kind of like going to be the WWF version of Don Carson or maybe Paul Jones, but but he didn't. Seem- oh, just what the WWF needed their own version <laughs> of Don Carson. He didn't. See, he didn't. See, I, don't, I don't know if he even lasted past this taping, but I don't think he did either but, yeah he was in and out and uh but, but it was it, this show you know it's on youtube if you guys want to look it up it, it's definitely uh a, a very um, unusual look at the expansion of, at early early expansion days of the wwf and i should say first heel manager because buddy rogers came in in 1982 but you know that doesn't count the way uh i mean you know i would if i had watched this i'd never i had never seen this show until about 87 88 uh i would have just assumed this maganoff guy is like wow they're going to replace the grand wizard of wrestling with him and then finally December 30th, 1983, final show of the year for the WWF, uh, two days after the St. Louis show. Nothing too big on this show except where it took place, Detroit, Michigan. The WWF has debuted in Detroit, uh, which is a big deal. It is a a big, big city that I don't believe Georgia Championship Wrestling had actually run Detroit. I think they were just in like Flint and Grand Rapids, but now uh, a major city that had not had wrestling for a long, major league wrestling for a long time now has the World Wrestling Federation just like Los Angeles and San Diego uh, about a year earlier. I, I, I found it interesting, uh, just something I had just learned of I think through Brian Solomon that uh, you know in the Sheik's dying days of his old promotion, like around 1980, Vince the elder Vince had sent him uh, Hogan and Andre to work on an undercard. I think uh the Sheik Ed Farhat defended his title, the U.S. title against Bob Backlund, kind of a title for title match on that show. And I think Vince uh, also sent the Samoans in. So the WWF stars had been in Detroit before, uh, but now they're actually you know promoting the show and uh, and and this would be a, a, a huge thing because uh, as we know. Uh, Shortly, they would move into uh, Toronto and uh, and replace the Crockett promotion uh, in '84. Uh, they would really uh, take that promotion over uh, uh, Toronto Wrestling, and then um, all of the all of the the big uh, steps they made, the inroads they made in Canada with the Stu Hart's promotion, and other things that they did uh, would all eventually lead to WrestleMania three, where the Detroit, Toronto area, and even the big show they did with Orndorff and Hogan at Exhibition Stadium in in 86, uh, it was just 
that got to be as big or close to as big as the New York market was for WWF. Oh, God. I mean, in the Midwest, they were going crazy in 85 and 86. I mean, you know, they just put up a sign that says wrestling and people are going to show up for it because it was was new to them. Mm -hmm. And I should point out, too, that, you know, when Vince McMahon, when the WWF went out to Los Angeles and San Diego, you know, hey, those cities had been abandoned for quite some time. You could say the same thing about Detroit. It had been abandoned for quite some time. St. Louis, you could argue that, hey, there was a split between the St. Louis wrestling club and larry madisick and that wasn't anyone's really anyone's city anymore so i mean you can kind of make excuses i guess but i mean no questions asked the writing is on the wall as we discussed a few uh weeks maybe months earlier when we were talking about the 1983 wrestling observer newsletter that you know they knew that vince was going national yeah, it, it's so funny to see the uh, the observer back in those days where you know Meltzer was doing a lot of uh, Vince bashing and really bashing the entire WWF product, uh, the for everything from the TV, every every TV show, every card, everything would be bashed. But uh, you know Vince had the staying power because he had enough money in the bank and he was getting these big uh, revenues, especially on the East Coast in these early days, uh, and and of course now getting revenue throughout the country and uh, you know when once these big shows start happening like Wrestlemania where you're getting this huge uh, gross of sales of tickets and of course all the revenue they're going to get from the, the dolls and the different uh, marketing things uh, it definitely allowed them to grow and grow and of course we know where they are now and Vince is a, a billionaire uh, now as, as we we so obvious I mean, a billionaire four and a half times over. <laughs> right. I mean, he's done fairly well for himself. Steve, um, I mean, we're, we're going, by the way, uh, two things, everyone. Number one, I do believe that we are going to have a review purposes, a segment to end this show this week. And number two, um, I mean, I, I don't want to get too down on, oh, I, well, let me throw in another number two. Not to do too much on the WWF uh, fall of 1983. We are going to do, answer questions on this era next week, and then we'll do something else the, the week after. I wanted this to be as it u- usually had been, you know, two shows where we talk about WWF spring 1982 or, you know, summer 1983. There was just a lot to talk about during this era, but Steve, um, I'll tell you what, you know, not to get too negative, but this is it. I mean, we're we're closing the coffin on once again, not just the Backlund era, but the two Bruno eras, the Pedro eras, etc. I mean, it's over. And when I say that, Vince was going to change wrestling to the point where you were not going to recognize it. Now, some people might hear that and say, "Oh, come on, no." It would be like to me. If you changed baseball by bringing in all of the fences so that, you know, the left field wall is only 250 feet away and the center field wall is only 300 feet away, but the walls are 100 feet tall and they have eliminated the outside the park home run. (laughs) Sure, the bases are still, you know, 60 feet and 60 inches away. You know, you're still pitching to the batter, but the game change. It would be like if basketball, if they decided to, instead of just having two baskets at the end of the court, they had baskets like a, a pool table where there's two in the co- you know, one in each corner and then one um, on each side. Yeah, 
you're still passing and shooting and doing everything that you would do in basketball, but it's a different game. And when Hogan came in, it, you know, and 1984 happened, it was a different game. Well, well I, I just want to add that it, from strictly a, a person that was going to the shows, and I want to hear what you have to say on this. I know you were going to the shows even more than I was. I noticed a huge difference in 84 from the past because in the past you'd have three or four squash matches. You'd have a good main event as good as anywhere. You'd have back on against somebody. You'd have a, a good tag team match and you'd have like maybe one other decent match, about three squash matches. But I remember the first show I attended in 84, which was, well, we'll get to that at some point. It had, you know, it had uh, Ken Patera wrestling a prelim match. You had the Simones in a match. You had, I mean, there was just a ton of talent on the card, and it, it wasn't just like a six-match card. It may have been like a seven or eight-match card, and uh, it was just you, you were getting a lot more for more value for your buck. I felt in the expansion era, and and to John's point earlier about you know this is the end of the old era, this is the beginning of the new era. You know, I like the fact that you were going to see this these incredible talents that you hadn't seen before, like a Randy Savage, like a Terry Funk, you know, people that we had never seen before come in. And, and you know, for me personally, in 85, when Bruno uh, started wrestling again, when, when he came back and he's feuding with Piper and you got Orton and Orndorff. That, to me, was as old school as anything. So even though the old days are done, there's still a lot more to look forward to. And uh, it's still going to have a a sense of the great stuff of the WWF and some of the good new stuff that they would bring in with the expansion as well. No, I I don't mean to seem defeatist. Um, (laughs) I know there there had to be people who in 1984, 85, 86 might watch a tape of 82 WWF wrestling and be like, my God, wrestling was so boring (laughs) four or five years ago. You know, in in a way it it was. I mean, it was just what we were used to, you know. The TV would be... Every match would be a squash match, except maybe three or four a year. A year. And then you would have uh, angles, maybe two or three, maybe four a year. I used to I used to joke that during the Monday Night Wars, we would see more angles on Raw in one hour <laughs> than we did in one year in 1982, except I wasn't joking. It, it was, um, I, you know, for, I'm just, I'll speak for both of us. I mean, it was so exciting when the... Cap Center was running those house shows in the early 80s, you know, back and against Bob Orton or back and against Slaughter. And, of course, you'd see the MSG shows, too. But now as we get into this peak period of the expansion where you have TNT and you have primetime where guys are actually, you know, you have, uh, say, Jack Reynolds and Jesse or eventually you have Monsoon and Bobby the Brain. And they're showing these, you know, house show matches from Toronto or the Garden or Boston and it's just so exciting to see, uh, you know, wrestling has really evolved and and it's huge in different markets. It's not just Madison Square Garden. You're seeing all these different venues offer the, the product that you love. I mean, it was so exciting. I mean, uh, like you say, 82, 81 was boring in comparison. It's true, and I also I've mentioned this on the show before. In as late as as early 1981, I was getting one hour. No, I take that back. 
two hours of wrestling on TV every week. I would get the WWF Championship Wrestling Show. Uh, believe it or not, we didn't get the All-Star Show. And then there was an hour of Florida Championship Wrestling on cable. And weird coincidence, like almost as soon as the Florida wrestling went away, uh, we got WTBS in my area. So now I'm like, wow, I'm getting three hours of wrestling a week. And I'm going to the Boston Garden, so this is great. Then by 83, I'm getting world-class. There's more wrestling on WTBS. Now I'm getting all-star wrestling. And, you know... Now I'm like, wow, I'm getting so much wrestling on TV, and I wish someone had said to me, wait till 84, wait till 85, wait until 86, you're going to be up to your eyeballs in TV, TV wrestling. It, it was just, you know, it was just an embarrassment of riches. I mean, you think about, like, by 87, where you have, like, multiple hours of TBS wrestling, and you have multiple hours of WWF wrestling, and then you have these these obscure shows like uh, Joe Petticino's Pro Wrestling This Week, which I loved, and you have... Uh, you know, more obscure stuff like Deep South was on Tempo TV. Uh, you know, oh, UWF was on like uh, I, I got I actually got UWF on one station in upstate New York, and then uh, on Tempo they would run another Deep uh, another UWF show on a Saturday night. So I mean, you're getting so much volume of wrestling, and uh, it really it made it made you appreciate WWF more from watching these other promotions, and and you enjoy the other promotions because they were so different than WWF. It was so exciting. I think what Steve's really saying is, John, it really wasn't that bad. Come on. And and it it, it wasn't. I'm not saying it was. I'm just saying, like, you know, it's almost like, you know, when you move from one city to another, it's like the the next city could be great, but you miss the old city, and that's kind of just where I'm coming from. Like, you know, I... It's been 40 years now, and I miss the old WWF. I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, Hopefully, we'll be having a review segment. But, uh, Steve, thank you for coming on. Thanks for taking the time. Well, well, thank you, John. It's great uh, talking about the backland title change. It seems like something we could talk about all day long. Yeah, it, it really is, and we there, there's more of it to come. I want to thank uh, Brian Lass for giving us this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does producing Stick to Wrestling. And, and of course, most importantly, I want to thank everyone for listening. It really does mean a lot to me. It keeps me going. Uh, this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. Go Vols, beat Kentucky. For review purposes, we're returning with this segment where we talk a little bit about the show that we just recorded, the one you just heard. Before I bring on my guest, I want to give a shout-out to Brandon and Chloe Rice. Um, A couple of years ago, we did a shout-out for Chloe, who lost her dad, and she recently just lost her mom. And I said when we discussed her dad, she's way too young to lose her dad. And she's doubly too young to lose both of her parents. So, Chloe, we're thinking of you. And Brandon has had some health issues. He's way too young for that. So, once again, guys, we're thinking of you. Brandon and Chloe, you know, I hope it gets better. With that, I want to break, bring on my friend Jake the Valentine Hamar. And we're going to discuss for a little while uh, the podcast you just heard. Jake, what do you got for me? Yeah, it was really good, man. Um, I I was listening to the whole series of 1983 and it's like crazy 1983 in the WWF was like one of the most crazy years 
in history because not only was the WWF doing well, but also at the same time, Vince McMahon was like flying all over the country trying to get TV deals going. He had start running Los Angeles and San Diego. Then he had to deal with the Jimmy Snuka situation. So Uh it's like, dude, like, did this guy ever sleep? I mean, they're just a billion issues all at once. Plus, he had to uh, court Hulk Hogan. So it was uh, interesting to me that Vince McMahon, like, did this guy ever get any sleep in 1983? I mean, the, the not even joke about Vince McMahon, supposedly he did not sleep. He slept even into his 60s and 70s. He slept like three or four hours a night. That's not good for anybody. But he's a billionaire, so, I mean, how could I criticize the guy? So And and people are some people are just wired like that. You know what I'm saying? Dude, if I don't get like six hours of sleep, I feel like a zombie, man. That's just how I'm wired. But Vince is a different kind of animal. I truly believe Vince McMahon is like the Dos Equis guy. He's probably the most interesting man in the world because he's... And he keeps it all to himself. Dude, like, he has lived a million lives. He's been accused of everything under the sun. He's brought great entertainment to me and millions of fans over the years. He's done some shady stuff, but you know what? We're all flawed individuals. But let me say this. I mean, it was crazy. Like, he was doing a billion jobs at once. I don't know how the Jimmy Snooker situation didn't affect him, but he somehow kept the ball rolling. I know it would affect me. I'd probably have an anxiety attack every day for the rest of my life. But uh, he just uh, kept going, man. I mean, you know what? He's a wrestling promoter. And what Snuka allegedly did went way beyond like you know anything else he had seen in wrestling, but he'd by that point he'd seen it all. You know what I'm saying? I mean, Snuka crossed a line, but like he'd seen so much in the wrestling business, especially in the '70s and early '80s. I mean, there were so many crazy stories out there. Uh, you know, I think if anyone were in a position where he could say, you know, okay. I can get through this, and however he got through it, you know, supposedly there the legend has it that he took care of the local police department, and that's how it went away. I mean, Vince took care of it. Dude, he is like Michael Corleone in wrestling. Like, he just makes it happen. He doesn't care who it hurts. He just gets it done. And, I mean, in, in regards to Bob Backlund, I mean, let's face it, Bob Backlund had come and gone. I mean... Nothing lasts forever. I mean, if you look back at the great sports franchises, Cincinnati Reds, Big Red Machine didn't last forever. The Los Angeles Lakers, Magic Johnson era didn't last forever. And unfortunately, Bob Backlund, his time was up. And I've been looking online, people have been saying, like, who would have been the perfect choice had Hulk Hogan not been signed? But there was no other choice. Hulk Hogan had to sign. I mean, he was the guy. And No, he... He was the guy, and the WWF was the place. I mean, it was, you know, the, the Reese's uh, Peanut Butter Cup of 1980, late 1983. Yeah, Bob Acklin, unfortunately, it was like Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage and Ricky Steamboat and Roddy Piper and all these guys were like Van Halen and Michael uh, Jackson and Madonna, and Bob Acklin, unfortunately, was like the Carpenters or Anne Murray. <laughs> Yeah, Bob Backlund slowly starving himself to death. Oh, 
Dude, I you know I have a lot of respect for Bob Backlund. Like I read his book. Same here, and I want everyone to know that I have a ton of respect for the guy. But man, watching him in 1983 was rough, and when he came back in '92, that was even worse. Like what, yes, it was. Why was why did Vince McMahon bring him back? Like it was horrible. Like he had some of the worst matches I've ever seen. Bob Backlund, and first of all, I agree with you. Everyone who says that that Bret Hart, uh, Bob Backlund Survivor Series match was good, like I don't know what you're watching or what you're watching it on. I, that ma- I thought that match was absolutely awful. He brought Backlund back at the end of 1982, which to this day that's got to be the most shocking bringing a guy back thing ever because they kind of, I don't want to say left on bad terms, but they were definitely on bad terms at one point. And 92 Bob Backlund, to this day, I think he had no value. Um, you know, Even though they made him champion, I think he had no value at that stage in his career. They brought him back because 1992, the WWF was hit with one scandal after another. And they figured, okay, we'll bring this guy back. We'll give him a role, not a Hulk Hogan slash uh, Bret Hart diesel role, but a role just because he... He's a straight guy. He's not going to get in any trouble. He'll represent the company well. Well, I think they should have like looked to WCW and see what guys were under contract during that time, like maybe Bobby Eaton or uh, Arn Anderson or someone like that. Like who who never you you never heard about a scandal about those guys. At least they'd put on better matches. I mean, no offense to uh, Brooklyn Brawler or Barry Horowitz. Those guys are. A, like really good workers in their own right, but they were better workers than Bob Backlund in 1992. Like you could have pushed them somehow and it would have worked out better than Bob Backlund. A lamp post was a better worker than Bob Backlund in 1992. I saw a match. I, I we had a show uh, that was called, there is such a thing as a bad Terry Funk match. I saw Bob Backlund versus Terry Funk in 1991, and the match was awful, and it was all Bob Backlund. And, I mean, for the WWF to bring him back, I don't know, if if anyone in that company saw that match, I mean, you've got to be like, we can't do this, but they did it. So in his book, he was talking about how Vince Jr. wanted him to turn heel and feud with Hulk Hogan. I think the only way you could have done that was turn Bob Backlund against America, have him managed by Freddie Blassie, and call him Sheik Backlund and team. Oh, <laughs> I love the idea. I've never even thought of anything like that. I I think I've said this on the show before. My take on it was that when Vince McMahon told Bob Backlund, you know, I want you to turn heel. I want you to dye your hair green. I think he was really saying, Bob, quit. Yeah, because he knew Bob wasn't going to go. You've worked a job before where you've seen people that they try to make them quit and they put like uh, tasks that they can't possibly do. I I think that's what Vince was doing in that situation. He's like, this guy's got to go. It's kind of like Lou Albano in 1986. It's like, this guy's got to go. He stinks. You know what I mean? I, I do, and Albano, supposedly, it was more than just he stinks. It's, it's, he was uh, supposedly drunk and insubordinate. I once had a a job where I managed people, and upper management told me that, you know, 
right before, if like someone's on their last strike, just tell them, look, this might not be the job for you. You might want to look elsewhere. And I think that's what Vince was telling Bob. Just, you know, I don't want to fire you. Here's what I want you to do. And I know you're not going to do it. And Bob, you know, in his book and elsewhere has said that, you know, hey, I can't do that. I have kids in school. And and beyond that, Bob, you know, for whatever, he had his own code. He had his own look, you know, this is who I am. And I'm not going to do this for this wrestling entertainment business, you know, I, and good for Bob, he could walk away, good for him, he, he saved his money, he had a house, he was all set, he didn't blow through his cash, like the, uh, the former WWF champion, and, you know, he was in a position where he could say, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah, he, uh, did, he was the anti-Ric Flair, by the way, Ric Flair showed up on AEW last night, uh, for Sting, (laughs) that was a surprise. I, I heard about that, and Christian gets on, and he's like, well, billionaire Tony Khan uh, d- decides to give uh, Sting a present, a, a black liver. <laughs> Christian's an all-time great. I think he's, like, one of the most underrated talents in the wrestling business. He just was under the shadow of Edge for so long, and Vince didn't see a value in Christian, but I think he's proving his worth. Uh, too bad it's coming at like 50 years old, but Christian yeah. Christian is was always a diamond in the rough. Getting back to 1983, though, uh, while we still have a few minutes, like who was the MVP in your eyes of 1983? I have a few guys. I think... I think Morocco was certainly there. Sergeant Slaughter was certainly there. Who who do you got for uh, 1983? I don't want to put Snook in there, even though he was, but just the whole situation with Nancy, Nancy Argentino could have wrecked everything the WWF could have had. Well, I'll say this. I think I, I might have said this before. If the Snooker, you know, if what happened with him and Nancy became public, I think the WWF could have distanced distanced themselves from Snuka. I think they could would have been like, okay, you know, this guy did this thing and he's out of here. It's not like, you know, it is in 2023. I mean, we had, you know, football. I mean, think about the Kobe Bryant situation. He would fly to Denver for a rape trial and then fly somewhere else the same day to play basketball. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's a little bit different today. And I think the WWF could have distanced themselves from Snuka. The MVP, look, with without the Argentino situation, which I was not aware of, I mean, really, I heard a little bit about it in 1987, but about 20 years ago, like, the whole thing kind of came to light. Like, you know, wow, he very likely killed this woman. Um, but if you didn't know about it, it's clearly Jimmy Snuka. It, I mean, as as valuable as Morocco, Backlund, Slaughter, etc. was, it's Jimmy Snuka by a long shot. With that in mind, con- considering that, you know, hey, he created this really bad situation, I would ultimately go with Morocco um, over Backlund, uh, over you know, over everybody else, but, you know, without that, and like I said, you know, it's, it's wrestling, whatever is on TV is kind of self-contained, or at least it, it definitely was in 1983. 
I've got to go with Snooka. Jake, I want to thank you for taking the time. I always say that the hour we do stick to wrestling is the fastest hour of my week. This is definitely being the fastest 10 minutes of my week. Dude, I had a great time. Thank you for having me on it, and thank you for uh, putting on that 1983 perspective for the last few months. I can't wait until 1984 because it's starting to blow up. Oh, we're we're there. We've got a big announcement coming about 1984, and we've actually got one more fall of 1983 show coming up. So, Jake, thank you, and, and Lou, thank you as well. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm.